0: Welcome back to the big show. This is as Lutheran as it gets, episode sixty-seven, and we are, as always, your host pastors Christopher Gillespie. It's not raining here yet. I'm waiting for it. And I am Pastor Donovan Riley, and uh, we are recording this on Memorial Day, two thousand nineteen, mm-hmm. and it was a deluge here. It's on as its way. <laughs> I stood out in the rain at the cemetery. <laughs> I'm far enough east that uh, yeah, it's on its way. It's not to you yet. Let's talk about so, the weather. Yeah, chat. that's what you do in the upper Midwest in the spring, summer, fall, and winter, actually. <laughs> True. It's like sports. So last week, we dove into Philip Melanchthon's Loci Communes* and we talked about the power of the law, and we left off at the end of Philip's first analogy, the first character he draws upon to use as an illustration of a sophistic, sophisticated pharisaic understanding of the law. A law that is doable, a law that is there to help improve you morally, to help you live a better life. And he cites Cicero as an example. And this week, then, we will dive into the second character in Philip's analogy in referring to the power of the law. And we started on page 77 of the Ichthus edition, the Ichthus translation of his loci uh, done by. Edited by Wilhelm Pauk mm-hmm. and translated by Lowell Satra. Nice name, French. Yes, yes, I hope I pronounce it correctly. And they are done that. Okay. <clears throat> so this week we're just going to dive right in because it's, there's so much here. And as we said in the last episode, uh, one, his power of exegesis mm-hmm. is remarkable. His clarity and the preciseness and the tightness of his arguments is laudable.
1: Yeah, and he leaves. Yeah, he doesn't I,
0: leave a lot to the
1: imagination. No, and so we really, uh, I mean, we can reflect upon what he says, but <laughs> but this show is primarily just him speaking for you for us.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, it is 100 percent just beautiful, crisp, and as you noted, I think in the last episode, he's writing this. He's in his early 20s when he writes this.
1: Yeah, it's pretty incredible.
0: He doesn't have, as we would say, a lot of worldly experience necessarily. He he earned his undergrad, I think, when he was 14.
1: His mm-hmm. master's. First master's, like a year later? And a second master's? Something like
0: that. Yeah. He Uh, was done when he was 17 with everything, academically. He was was pretty uh, quick study, as they say. Right. Definitely a genius level IQ, without doubt. So let's dive into this then and get, again, into Philip Melanchthon on the power of the law. So the other class of person are those to whom the following passages apply. The law is the power of sin, of wrath, etc., God reveals to them the law, shows them their hearts, and terrifies and confuses them with a realization of their own sin. In a word, these are the ones in whom God works through the law. Among hypocrites, the law does nothing, but they fashion a shadowy imitation of the law by their simulated hypocritical righteousness. The law truly and properly works in those to whom sin is revealed, because this really takes place. It is done by God. And Scripture calls His work, this work, judgment, the wrath of God, the anger of God, His glance, and countenance of wrath, etc. So, at the very outset, <laughs> I think we covered this a little bit last week too at the end of the episode so we're a little bit of overlap Mm -hmm. possibly here notice it's god works through the law in us this is not the law is spoken to us and then we become agents of the law of the command yeah to use the law for our purposes right this is what erasmus does in, in his debate in 1525 with luther is erasmus assumes that the command implies agency on the part of the hearer because otherwise, for Erasmus, his argument is: if God commands the impossible, then God would be unjust and unrighteous to condemn us. Yeah, isn't that the approach
1: um, unintentionally probably that that happened? At least for me, like in Sunday school instruction, right? So there's sure. there's good stories. There's there's moral examples. There's actually a pretty severe example of you know here's how you here's how you are to live or to behave. But then, mm-hmm. then you get to pick and choose or, or condition right. that um, for your own use or really for performance ability,
0: right? Right. Yeah. It, it, it circumvents the mechanism of salvation, which is death and resurrection, mm. and replaces it with life and better living through obedience to the commands.
1: Yeah, it's like we saying. you know, it, it brings uh, death on every hand. That's how right. the name goes.
0: And to review last week, the first class of person Philip addresses are those, he quotes, or I quote him, are those who understand the law carnally, fleshly, in an earthly sense. These blind fellows do not realize that the law demands impossible things, and they see neither sin, law, nor righteousness. These are the hypocrites and sophists of all ages. And Paul calls the righteousness of this class, righteousness by works of law. That is, he means the righteousness of those who, when they hear the law, set out to keep it by their own works. They give over their hands, feet, and head to the law, but their heart, they keep back because actually they would prefer to be without the law. However, holy they appear to be in their own eyes. Pleasures, wealth, and honor are still pleasing to them. Mm -hmm. No one has declared better than the spirit of God what sort of people they are. These type of people lack faith, their heart understands nothing of God, and they do not seek after God, they do not glorify God, but instead they despise God. Even while acting righteously. Outwardly, they are, they appear righteous and holy, but inwardly, they actually hate God. I was thinking about
1: this yesterday, uh, talked about it in, in my class after church, is that um, you know, sometimes I say something, I don't know, profound or whatever, and people respond well <laughs> to it. <laughs> Uh, and they'll say, in you know, eh, pastors' experience, oh, good, good sermon, pastor, or, or thanks for that. I really needed to hear that, or something like that. And the response of the uh, the pastor, uh, the natural response of the flesh, I would say, is to say thank you, or yeah, I worked really hard on that, or I appreciate right, that you, right. really, you know, that you enjoyed that, or whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. Take to take credit. You know, like, wait a minute. Uh, I'm in the preaching office. It's the office of Christ. It's Christ who speaks, not I who speak. Mm-hmm. Um, it's this is He's working by the Spirit to um, pronounce judgment against sin and, and righteousness according to His death um, for sin, and hmm, and you're taking credit for that, right? <laughs> and and it's maybe it's naive or maybe it's just out of habit, but. On on the flip side, no. What's the right answer is to say no. This this was all God's work, and right, and and that can be. I suppose that can be a lack of humility too, where you say, "Well, thanks be to God," or something like that. Right. Uh, well, it's insincere. as
0: Philip lays it out. It's as he says about the second class of person or the other class of person. Mm-hmm. God reveals to them the law, shows them their hearts, and terrifies and confuses them with the realization of their own sin, which is why the law is the power of sin of wrath, etc. Mm-hmm. Notice the first class they shut out the law in its truth, in its lawfulness, because they hate God in their heart. Mm-hmm. Therefore, they do not see themselves as sinners primarily, but as righteous and holy primarily, because they seek to obey the law with their hands and their feet and their mouths. Whereas here, you'll notice what the law does is it shows people their heart and terrifies and confuses them. Could this be the same
1: person that receives, and uh, you know according to the flesh, behaves in one way, um, but right. then God also um, reveals to them, maybe not at the same moment, um, but later, right? That mm-hmm. uh, the hypocrisy of their actions, um, and you know how it's it's a simulated, as he calls it, a simulated hypocritical
0: righteousness. Well, if we hold to the, uh, we're reading into Philip now, but mm-hmm. yeah. since we're since we're talking about it and kind of doing a thought experiment, if you hold the tension of the simile that we are. Uh, sinful in our flesh, we are damned and doomed and children of wrath in our flesh, but through faith in Christ by the spirit at work in us, we are also a new man simultaneously imputed righteousness. That is that Jesus's righteousness, which is his alone is imputed to us through the proclamation of the spirit. Hmm. Then yeah, absolutely. Right. That the flesh is, you are a hypocrite in the flesh and yet simultaneously forgiven Mm -hmm. for Christ's sake, according to the work of the spirit. It, But the trouble, too, is there. the danger, maybe, the temptation is to say, well, this is a linear thing. Mm. We're one thing, and then we strive to be the other thing, which he's going to actually get to, because at the bottom of this page, page 79, he's going to quote Romans 7. Yeah. And really get after it. Yeah, I think uh, the other aspect here that's challenging is
1: he's speaking, uh, you know, of an inter- the internal effect of the law, you know, how it's received right. by the person and uh, but we can't externally judge that i think you know we're looking at someone to say well you're behaving righteously but you don't actually believe that it, that it's mm-hmm. um, sure. you know it's not done out of faith in christ
0: well i would say pastorally the first character is the one that actually needs the law preached to him in its full lawfulness in its mm-hmm. legal all its legality the second person needs the gospel preached to him because he is terrified and confused about the realization of his sin yeah he only knows god as the god of judgment of wrath of anger right Uh, and so diagnostically this is i would argue a a helpful way Mm. to distinguish does this person who's come to me and confess to me do they need the law preached lawfully or do they need the gospel preached in its evangelical sweetness
1: and i would say then
0: pastorally
1: um you're not given to actually make that judgment until they respond right and so, i mean you can only judge based off of what they say right you're listening for their confession yeah exactly so yeah (laughs) they receive the law in such a way that they're they um, are so accused that they believe they're beyond salvation well then you know (laughs) what word needs to be spoken
0: next and in a and luther talks about this in several places pastorally and as a teacher those who appear outwardly righteous and holy are the most unrighteous and unholy because as philip says they despise god in their hearts and try to justify themselves if not in whole at least in part Mm -hmm. through their works of righteousness through works of the law whereas that one who looks as if they are the most lawless they're outlaws they are hopeless cases they're actually the closest to god because they feel and realize sin in their own in their own hearts on account of god working through the law to convict them yeah and so it's this this is the we call this the dichotomy or the paradox of the christian faith Which is why we walk by faith, not by sight. Yeah, I would say it's not always as clear. I mean, it's (laughs) no, it's messy. Yeah. We'd like it to be binary and we'd like it to be categorically clean with Mm -hmm. nice right angles. Mm -hmm. But as you and I both know, pastorally speaking, it's usually a ball of yarn. Yeah. And that the cat's played with for about a week. And that's what I wanted (laughs) to draw out that, that, you know, every person to classify them as
1: one or the other, they may even change in the midst of a conversation. As as you're speaking
0: the law to them, I would say pastorally in my experience, yeah, hundred mm-hmm. percent. I've had those conversations as you just noted too. I'm sure you have, which is they might come in. I've had several over the years. They come in, they're kind of contrite, but they don't want to reveal to me everything that is on their mind or on their conscience. They still hold us some prideful, right? Yeah, yeah, and then they'll they'll justify themselves to mm-hmm. themselves. They'll judge and compare themselves to others. And depending on the questions I ask, not the assertions that I make, I ask questions in such a way that I draw out the confession. I give them the room. This is something I've learned from friends of mine who are police, is that in an interrogation, the less that you say, the more they'll confess to. Well, and it won't stand up in court if you, uh, what do they call that? Right. If you lead a witness? Coerce. Coerce, yeah, there you go. A confession. And so they'll, you know, I was talking with friends of mine, they'll say, you can arrest a guy and you know Like we caught him with a gram of cocaine on his lap, going eighty-five miles an hour in a 30 mile an hour speed zone, and dead to rights. We've got him dead to rights. And we bring him in, and the whole time it's not mine. I was holding it for a friend. This is all this is entrapment, all this stuff. And then he gets in the interrogation room, and all he's got to do is say, I want a lawyer. That's all he's got to say. And if you push him, he'll say, Don't I get a lawyer? Don't I get a phone call? But if you sit them down and ask one question, one good leading question, and then just sit back, nine times out of ten they (laughs) hang themselves. Just get them talking. Right? Were Were you on the corner of Seventh and Washington at ten thirty five on PM or ten thirty five PM on Friday? All right. Yeah, I did kill him. Whoa! What? What? (laughs) Like all I did was ask you where you're at. You folded that quick. But that's the point: is that when your conscience, when you're guilty Mm. and you know you're guilty. You don't need someone hammering you with the accusation, you're guilty, just confess to it. That actually makes you shell up and shut down and say, no, you can't make me. Like with kids as a parent, right? Just tell the truth, just tell the truth. They're not gonna tell the truth because they're guilty. They know they're guilty. And the more you hammer on them, eventually you might force a confession, but it's still a confession through gritted teeth and you might not get the whole truth. Versus, so what did you do? Or as I do with my kids, if you tell me the truth, then the punishment won't be as severe. So Mm -hmm. just tell me the truth. We'll work through this. And through practice and experience, they know that's the truth. You tell me the truth, there's going to be consequences. There's going to be discipline, but it's not going to be harsh. It's not going to be punitive in the way that you feel crushed under the weight of this judgment. And we're going to talk through it. Like, why did you do that? And why did you feel the need to to lie? And why do you feel guilty? And do Mm -hmm. you think this was a good example to your brother and sister? So when the when my friends talk about interrogating criminals, it's very similar of make uh, establish a rapport with them, make it friendly, don't make it condemnatory or accusatory. Basically, sit with them, not against them, yeah. and then they'll spill their guts. Just give them the opportunity.
1: Well, and you don't and you don't have to. I think there, that's really what Melanchthon's kind of driving at here, right? Um, is that in the background, maybe not from you um but they know they know all the things the state can do to them right you know and mm-hmm. maybe even in your state uh you know, capital punishment right so the death penalty mm-hmm. um and and here you know we we know how god um judges according to the law yes uh He mentions anger of God, countenance of Mm -hmm. wrath, and then he gives us lots of psalms, which we haven't read yet. Maybe we should read those. Right. It's just
0: the pictures that the scripture give as to how God relates to sin. (laughs) Right. And I think this is a critical sentence. The law truly and properly works Mm -hmm. in those to whom sin is revealed, not as the previous character in whom good works are revealed or holiness is revealed, but rather the law truly works and is properly working only in those to whom sin is revealed.
1: And that comes up later, I think, in the Lutheran dogma- dogmatics. I don't think it's so much yet here, mm-hmm. um, but that, you know, there is the the chief use of the law, I think is as it's called in our yeah. confessions, right? Um, mm-hmm. The accusatory use. That, that, mm-hmm. that there It isn't to say there aren't other uses, and we talked about that in the last episode, that Melanchthon's largely just emphasizing first and second, not really what we call the third use, which right. we don't have to
0: talk about here. Yet. Yet. The failure is always to recognize God is at work through the law in every way that he chooses right, to apply his word of law to you in the present tense. Well, I think that was our point before, right, where um,
1: we'd like to, again, accept some kind of agency and say, we're going to use God's law to do what we want it to do, whether as a preacher right. against others, uh, right. against their sin, um, or individually, you know, mm-hmm. I'm going to pick and choose from the law so that I can have right. this hypocritical, you know, simulated righteousness that Melanchthon talks about.
0: And this is the difference, I think we've talked about this before on this podcast, the difference between modernity and pre-modern thinkers like Philip Melanchthon and Martin Luther is they understand the language of instrumentality. Mm -hmm. We are the instruments of the spirit. Modernity after the enlightenment is primarily understood us as agents, that we have agency. Yeah. And that we are sovereign. This is the whole argument for You know, my body is, keep your laws off my Mm -hmm. body. Radical individualism. Yeah. Yeah. This is the sovereignty of the individual, the sovereignty of me over my own body. We treat our body as an object of somehow separate from our brain, but that's a different conversation. Um, Nonetheless, you have the language of agency competing with this pre-modern then theology of instrumentality. Whereas Philip right here perfectly encapsulates that. It's God who works through the law.
1: Right, and that (laughs) creature-creator relationship is um relational Uh, correct and and they're bound together whether you like it or not you are a
0: creature of your creator Uh, now when you treat the law as an idea or a principle Mm -hmm. then you automatically separate god from this idea
1: (laughs) (laughs) right as if the law is something other than
0: his word right exactly other than god himself working (laughs) yeah he works by speaking right and for god to speak is to do Mm-hmm. It's very yeah. simple. So then to your point, then here's Philip and his, his citations primarily from the Psalms and the prophets. So Psalm 97 verses two through five, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries round about his lightnings lighten the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord before the Lord of all the earth. And then Psalm 76, verse 8. From the heavens you did utter judgment. The earth feared and was still. Zechariah chapter 2, verse 13. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4. He will smite the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Mm-hmm. And then Habakkuk chapter three verse six: He looked and shook the nations; then the eternal mountains were scattered. Oof. Yeah, they must have some uh, have
1: had some kind of intimate knowledge of the idea of a of a mountain being destroyed. Think mm-hmm. like volcanic explosion. Sure, <laughs> I've wondered about that historically. It's like no when did that happen what mountains are they it's that it's out there maybe very similar to like the flood myths that Mm -hmm. that are persistent throughout many cultures even though Mm -hmm. you know as we would say there's one flood or one worldwide catastrophic right
0: well i know the rabbis and i can't i don't know if christians theologians go this too but the rabbis speculate that um the mountain that moses climbed was an active volcano Mm, I have because, heard that. because again there's no. right there's fire and smoke coming up out of the mountain and there's the clouds that cover the mountain and of course earthquake. and lightning and mm. the earthquake exactly that this is volcanic activity and of course you have Sodom and Gomorrah no um, longer active volcano right hmm. but nonetheless something that we again tend to shy away from culturally that the Israelites fully embrace is that God is the God of the earth the all the earth mm, right. so the lightning that lightens the world God sends that the earth trembles at it because god is over the earth and the mountains melt before the lord i think that psalm
1: 97 is appointed for transfiguration sunday i think so too because i know we've studied this and
0: read this uh rather recently
1: which you know transfiguration i mean one of the key themes there is that relation um to jesus via moses and um, elijah right Mm -hmm. and you know once, once the voice comes and there's the lightnings and he's, you know, shining. Right. Um, they're terrified. Mm-hmm. And so it's a Sinai kind of event for the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark right. And
0: well, and as – because like you said, it's probably Transfiguration Sunday, but when we do the introit then and we mm-hmm. confess these psalms responsively, whole verse by whole verse, <laughs> after the fact, when you discuss this stuff over coffee, because it, obviously it's very evocative language – Pastorly, once again, I would just point out the fact that as troubling as this may sound to you as you confess it in the introit, it's actually quite comforting if you consider the fact that natural phenomena, mm. the Lord that the Lord uses all of creation and bends it toward your salvation, mm-hmm. and He's not absent or
1: disconnected from His creation, right? You know that that absent wa- you know watchmaker kind of idea. Yes, you know that He set it in motion and then walked away. That's not how it works. Yeah. Which then. Um, I suppose, also adds import to your prayers, especially as
0: you you know pray for rain or for right. seed to grow or um, for life <laughs> right <laughs> or healing. Well, I wonder, too, if this doesn't play into our lack of fear of the Lord. When we read fear of the Lord and we think solely in terms of respect or reverence hmm. versus actual fear in the sense of um, God is above us, he is beyond our comprehension, and all of the earth... Is, submits itself to him, is subdued by him. He is master of all the earth. And therefore, a natural phenomenon, which is totally out of our control, is a part of the Lord's doing, a part of his hiddenness and his hidden works. Well, it's the stilling of the storm, right? We see that with right. Jesus. Yeah. Right, 100%. <sighs> uh-huh. And so, therefore, even the earth can drive us to cry out and to say, Lord, who will save us? Or to repent and to say, Lord, save us period, without a question. I look to the hills, from where does my help come? Yeah, we've talked about it, I
1: think, before as well, but I I know I have kind of gone after the, what I think is a mistaken idea that you can kind of find God in nature, Mm-hmm. Um, because the god that you find isn't isn't the god of mercy and of grace and peace It's not a forgiveness of sins mm-hmm. um you do find god though <laughs> right. right sometimes you know it's like what happened last week i mentioned this in class on sunday you know they they had kind of a traffic jam at the top of everest a bunch of people died you're like mm-hmm. they're like w- class yeah. like, really a traffic jam like there was too many climbers in there you know on the trail at once right like yeah you don't want to get caught at the top of the mountain and stop moving
0: that's Uh, become a major issue in in recent years with the number of people who are going to climb mm -hmm. and yeah you get your discount rate climbs (laughs) up everest and then you get your top level but a lot of high level mountaineers don't even go to everest anymore no you can't not with that kind of congestion and
1: uh, the trails are well worn with very and also littered with uh dead bodies that they can't really remove. Yes, us. they are. <laughs> hundreds and hundreds. But my point being is that, yeah, um, God, as
0: you meet him there, um, is the same God. Um, the God of Everest is the God that says you have eight hours to to, to crest the peak and get back down to the base camp. Before the storm w- comes, yeah. Or I'm going to kill you. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Because I just, yeah, I just, in the last three months, I listened to uh, a group, they got caught halfway mm-hmm. b- between the peak and two people turned around to go back down and- did make it. They couldn't find him. They never found him again.
1: Yeah, it's something like two or three weeks that you've got uh, seasonally that you can actually make the call. Yeah, seasonally. Yep. Typically. Exactly. Yeah. But that, I mean, that's what yeah. uh, Melanchthon's quoting here is those Psalms just speaking of the way that God yes. um, uses creation uh, to terrify. Right. And and I, But I liked where you went with it to say, um, also to um, bring comfort. And I think where we see, maybe, maybe we can see kind of an incomplete picture of the mercy of God where where uh, destruction is held at bay, you know right. flooding, um, you know, as, as storms come to an end and flooding recedes. Right. And we because of the maybe because of the flood story, mm-hmm. um, or
0: some of these other stories where are the stilling of story. I was gonna say you can look to the example of Jonah. Jonah that God going, bends yeah. all of creation to the salvation of Nineveh. Jonah goes through everything that he goes through and at the end of the day he's still angry at God and begs to die. And we're looking at it and like, um he's saved right. you. Right. That's amazing. <laughs> And Jonah's like, no, actually, I'd prefer to die. You're persistently hard-hearted. Well, it's 2020. We have the advantage of that, right? And if we were in the midst of
1: that, right, exactly. I think we'd respond the same way, yeah.
0: So, therefore, to continue, Melanchthon writes, But why pile up many passages, since the law is obviously one part of Scripture, and the work of the law is to kill and to damn, to reveal the root of our sin and to perplex us? Obviously. Right? I love that. Why pile up many passages since the law is obviously one part of scripture?
1: We are actually we were actually thanking him for piling up the passages. Right, he's doing exactly. all the legwork for us here. Yeah. Because I
0: think didn't we read this last episode too? We must have. I think we I think we read this last episode. It's just so good. Forgive us if we're being redundant. Uh one, it's been a long week, I think, since we recorded this, <laughs> the last episode. And I haven't had a chance to listen to the full episode myself, but this is just good enough to repeat actually numerous times. Because I remember saying obviously. Yes. There we go. <laughs> so if you think you're having a Groundhog's Day moment, you're not. And yet you are. It's all a simulation. So the work of the law is to kill, to damn, to reveal the root of sin and to perplex us. It mortifies not only avarice and desire, but the root of all evils. Our love of self, the judgment of reason, and whatever good our nature seems to possess. Yeah, we definitely read this. Mm-hmm. From this, it will be apparent how the moral virtues stink. And how the righteousness of the saints is nothing but dirty, bloody rags. Mm-hmm. Therefore, it was fitting that even Moses exclaimed in Exodus chapter 34, verse 7, that before God, not even the innocent is innocent. Oh, that's clever. Right? But what seems
1: innocent isn't innocent. Yeah.
0: Right. Nahum chapter 1, verse 3 he will by no means clear the guilty. David says in Psalm 143, verse 2, enter not into judgment with your servant. Psalm 6, verse 1, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger. In Isaiah 38, verse 13, Hezekiah says, like a lion, he breaks all my bones. John says with his characteristic succinctness, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Truth is opposed to hypocrisy. And grace to the anger of God. Through Jesus Christ, grace, that is, the mercy and favor of God, and true righteousness are born in our hearts. Therefore, it follows that the law is the author of hypocrisy only when it forces those who are unwilling and raging against God. It produces wrath when it condemns us as guilty sinners. Hmm author of hypocrisy that's an
1: interest it sounds like a band name yeah but uh yeah but but also um uh i don't know that people think of it that way they think hypocrisy is a matter of like a self-realization and i think melancholy saying no it's a
0: revelation right is that we tend to treat well one way that the old adam sinner functions is he says god's word of law bad god's word of gospel good Hmm. law puts me on the spot gospel gets me off the hook you see this in a lot of preaching and teaching, which is wrong. It's false. It's a well, false to, distinction. One, it's it's kind of soft
1: very and, soft, and doable. But but on the other aspect too, um, is it really sells God short, doesn't it?
0: Well, I was going to say, it's, it's essentially what Philip points out is the old Adam saying, but I want to live. Mm-hmm. And God saying, oh, you need to die. I just need some medicine. Right. And that's what the old Adam does is he treats the law as medicine, as a little vitamin pill.
1: Almost like just a spoonful of yes sugar makes the medicine go
0: down well it's like you know you have this really wonderful bourbon and you add some bitters it's a placebo is what it is Mm, yeah it's because the law is the law regardless of whether you acknowledge it or not and no matter how you want to justify like you said diminishing god's word of law by diminishing obviously god because you actually hate god in your heart which is why you're trying to actually live by obedience to the law versus yeah if i then come along and say the author that the law is the author of hypocrisy if you hate god and think that you can actually do what god commands and therefore you believe that holiness sanctification the christian life is defined by your outward obedience you know your appearance of righteousness and holiness then to say that the law is the law of hypocrisy is offensive Mm -hmm. yeah, because it reveals that you are a hypocrite (laughs) right
1: and then the other aspect too is that um you know, Melanchthon is commending to us kind of an honesty, right? Be honest. Mm-hmm. And to say, um, as guilty sinners, we do encounter
0: God through his law
1: as God of wrath. Right. Have judgment. It is
0: the law of hypocrisy only when it forces those who are unwilling and raging against God to admit they're hypocrites. Right, right. It produces wrath when it condemns us as guilty sinners. It's very simple. When God is at work in us through the law, we are revealed to be guilty sinners, and what is the first thing we confess? Lord, I am a miserable sinner. Have mercy on me. And that's all good. It's, it, it's God's work. Right, exactly. Yeah. Right. Then it's good. Then the law is good because the law is putting to death the old man and raising up the new man in Christ to live before him in righteousness, innocence, and blessedness forever. Yes. So then to continue in Romans 7, verse 7, where Paul discusses the power of the law most thoroughly, he says... If it had not been for the law, I should not have known sin. I should not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said, you shall not covet. Likewise, in Romans 3, verse 20, he says, Through the law comes knowledge of sin. As if he would say that hypocrites are falsely persuaded that righteousness is wrought by law, since the law simply shows the heart its sin. Hmm. Yeah, right? since the law simply
1: shows the heart its sin, is that so simple? Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know. I think we probably do like to twist the law into into other things. Well, it's simple. It's just that we don't take it easy. (laughs) We don't receive that easily. But by simple, he means, um, you know,
0: that's its work. Yeah, simply put, the law shows you your sin. (laughs) Right, we talked about
1: uh, just a few minutes ago, you know, that being the chief use.
0: Right. Mm -hmm. And the way that we then make this complicated is by refusing to accept that it simply shows the heart it's sin mm. we want it to do so much more
1: yeah so later the confession is that it always shows the heart it's sin right they 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 emphasize even more simpler right yes and
0: uh, because what do we try and do we try and wiggle out of it and say well yes it does but it also does so much more to help me live so this is uh well, how does
1: this play out Right? We were talking about children. You know, you instruct them. You show them the way they should go. Um, mm-hmm. And they don't accomplish it. Correct. Ever. Right. <laughs> and that accuses them. Like, I, am I ever going to be good enough for my mom and dad? You know? I was going to say,
0: more damning is, as I read uh, the other day, at some point, your son will stop taking your advice and start following your example. Ooh. So that which is you. <laughs> right. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. It's damning. Because it, when he takes your advice, you can say, well, you just didn't do it right. mm But then when he starts to follow your example and ape you, mimic you, yeah. Yeah, that shows your hypocrisy for sure. Right. So next, Philip writes, quote, but sin, finding opportunity in the commandment, wrought in me all kinds of covetousness. Romans chapter 7, verse 8. That is, when I began to realize the burden of the law, nothing positive was effected by it. As a result, my coveting stirred up even more, began to rage against the judgment and the will of God. Hmm. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Verse 8. That is, unless the law had shown me the sin in my heart, unless a sense of sin had thoroughly shown me the sin in my heart, unless a sense of sin had thoroughly terrified me, sin would have died and would not have boiled up. For I was once alive apart from the law, verse 9, there was a time when I seemed righteous to myself, for I did not see the law or even sin. When I was in that condition, sin was slumbering and did not openly fight against God. But when the commandment came, sin revived and I died, verse 9. That is, when God had shown me my sin by means of the law, sin was resuscitated, I was thrown into confusion, terrified, horror-stricken. In a word, I died. It was precisely then that I saw what the power of the law is. Certainly the law was given that we might live, but since we are not able to keep it, it is an instrument of death. Finally, why is it that the law slays? The law is spiritual. That is, it demands spiritual things, truth, faith glorifying God, love for God. But I am carnal, unbelieving, without knowledge of God, senseless, living, loving myself, etc. Mr. Melanchthon here has a um, kind of
1: low view of uh, mankind. You think? And our ability to right? have faith or love or uh, believe in God. Oh, it's fantastic. It
0: is, but it isn't. I mean, it's also terrifying in, in its own way, right? This reminds me of <laughs> on Saturday when we, sp- we did an hour of sparring in Muay Thai. We we're doing technical drills. One person was on defense and the other person was on offense for each round. Mm-hmm. And there are just some folks who don't have a tight guard, so they don't keep their gloves in the proper position, elbows in, hands up, chin down. And so when you throw a jab, you just keep snapping their head back because your jab goes right between their gloves and nails them right on the chin or the nose. And their head snaps back, and their head snaps back. And he, he snaps them back. And then he's like, okay, this is what you're doing wrong. At Correct some this. point. Right. And so you're correcting them. You're walking them through it. But in that moment of the stress and the anxiety, they just, they forget. And they kind of go back to their bad habits. And their experience takes over and so forth. And this, this is what Philip feels like as he works his way through Romans 7 verse by verse is that no matter how much you put your guard up, he just keeps punching you in the face. Just these sharp jabs to the to the bridge of your nose, just jab, jab, jab. And you're like, but, 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 but. And it's like, yeah, you can keep saying but, but you just, you can't guard yourself against what he's doing. Yeah. And the law,
1: you know, as, as Paul says, and, and uh, Philip here is quoting, Hmm. the idea that it increases until until you are dead increases trespasses so so it shows you your rebellion against god right and because you see that you are being rebellious to god then you become even more rebellious right
0: until until you're dead right so the old adam says lord give me rules for life and god says all right die (laughs) if you want to live you must die Mm -hmm. okay so you mean metaphorically no i mean an actual fact so you mean spiritually no i mean in in concrete reality so you mean like symbolically i have to go through this rite, which presents a kind of death and rebirth conversion like a butterfly Mm -hmm. no you actually have to die die and we have to throw dirt on you and bury you and you have to wait for the resurrection oh you mean that death (laughs) right and that's the problem at the end of the day isn't it is that we don't want to die Mm. which is why again going back to the first character example it's all about how do i live better but at root it's still just how do i live there does seem to be this like secret hope that um that we
1: have to that if we just did it a little bit better we wouldn't die right then the last group right? yeah if we if we just got it a little bit you know, i mean because look at it we're, we're living longer than we ever were right right before well not exactly but for a long time. I mean life expectancy mm-hmm. is longer than it than it's been for a long right. time. Um so we must be we must be getting there, you know? And so let's mm-hmm. let's keep doing that and a little bit more. Right. And then maybe at some point we will live forever. Like right.
0: you know, like the Highlander. Yeah. Problem is with Ecclesiastes, the longer the life, what happens, the greater the sorrows. <laughs> yeah. And it's all vanity. <laughs> it's, it's all yeah, it's all just a uh, uh, Havel. Mm a breath a wind a ghost it's transitory that is the problem is that as you noted no matter how much we might dedicate ourselves to doing what god commands we're ghosts we're dead men walking
1: now there's only one thing that's going to take care of that that right. actual physical forever death. Right.
0: <laughs> and this really is the key component i think in formula article six on the 30th of the law which is What third use is, is all about you need to sacrifice yourself for your neighbor. What we call the pedagogical use or the teaching use. yeah, Right. Is that the law basically comes and says, all right, you're saved. Now here's what you're going to do now that you're saved. You're going to die for your neighbor. It's another kind of death. Right. Hmm. You're going to do the little d-death. You're going to die. You're going to sacrifice yourself for your neighbor because Jesus died the big d-death for you already. So you have nothing to fear. And by the way... if to live as christ and to die as gain why wouldn't you want to sacrifice yourself for your neighbor
1: yeah i mean what's the worst that could happen you die well that's okay yeah i think that's exactly you know paul's point right
0: that uh whatever happens it's all good and the hypocrites going back to Melanchthon and luther's example the hypocrites live only for themselves Mm. which is why they're so condemnatory and judgmental of others who are not as holy or righteous as they are according to the law because they don't actually care about loving your their neighbor. Their neighbor is just the opportunity for them to score points with God and say, look, I'm keeping the law, I'm loving my neighbor. Versus true selflessness, it's again Memorial Day as we record this, mm-hmm. true selflessness is the the two most important people in the world right now are the man to my left and the man to my right. And should I have to throw myself on a grenade or take a bullet or do something to sacrifice my life so that they might live? I'm gonna do it. Yeah. Because these are my brothers. That's an earthly righteousness. And yet from that example is the law which says, now you Christian, go do likewise, but do so in Christ's name. And in faith. Right. Trusting. I will work all things you know for my good. And not, again, turning around and saying to God, but I did what you told me to do. But again, if you're focused on the other, you never – look at yourself and say was that enough you're not little jack horner sitting in the corner saying what a good boy am i Mm -hmm. but rather you're simply saying all that matters is that i'm a better husband and a better father and a better pastor and a better training partner and a better neighbor that's all that matters do what i can do while it's still day Mm. exactly and when someone then says you've really gotten good at this or i can really see that you've you've invested a lot of time and effort in being a better husband and i can definitely see You know, Annie is better for it. Your kids are better for it. I don't then say, oh, good. I can check that box off. Right. You know, on a scale of one to 10, how would you grade me as a husband? (laughs) Versus one, there's no end to the instructional, the teaching use of the law. Because it teaches you to death. Yeah, it's true. Because there is no greater love that a man has than that he laid down his life for his friends. Which is Jesus. This is what Jesus is saying about himself. But then, by virtue of our being in Christ through faith, and this is why Paul says in Colossians, "What we can, we we complete what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ in our own body," hmm. which is mind-boggling. Yeah, I mean, just the just think of how to say it for Paul to say that,
1: <laughs> like just to write that down. We, well, we talked about in the last episode how. Um, You know, Paul says, well, I have, you know, I know of no accusation against myself. I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Right.
0: (laughs) Just, wow, dude. There were lots of accusations against you, Paul. You have courage courage in spades. Right. Um, But nonetheless, it it is to the point that it's all about, well, I'm trying to live a better life and trying to prove to God that I'm worth his attention, worthy of the reward, worthy of forgiveness in life, versus the other who's saying, "I, I could care less about any of that. All I care about is that by way of comparison, when the law of God is at work in my heart and says, my wife is a mirror of the law, my kids are the mirror of the law, and so forth, in the mirror of the law, I don't measure up. Mm. I'm not good enough. It's not that I'm even, it's not that I'm perfect or that I've completed the task of being a better husband. I'm never good enough. Or, or you know, I'm on the right path. I'm, I'm getting there. Right. Right. I'm getting better. Mm-hmm.
1: It's like, no. Oh, you're dead. You're dead. Right. And if, if anything good comes of any of this, um, any of these vocations that the Lord has placed you in, right? it's, it's his work. Again, right. that instrumentality, but also instrumentality then um, in terms of like creatureliness, right. relation. And it, this is probably worth emphasizing. I mean, the, the purpose of God speaking to us is to restore that re, his relationship right, to 100%. us. Right, 100%. Exactly. Yeah.
0: I'm not taking the, again, I'm not taking these ideas that God gives to me and then saying, okay, now God help me understand how i apply these to my marriage to my mm-hmm. being a father to my being a pastor to my being a you know whatever it might be but rather to your point it's all about the relationship of christ to the sinner psalm 51 stuff even when we experience um or perceive
1: god as as wrathful or vengeful mm-hmm. or angry that's n- from god's perspective it's not rep- that's not relationship destroying but it's it's relationship
0: building in a way no it's jesus in relation to the syro yeah it's jesus in relation to the Phoenician woman mm, right he's hunting up faith as luther says yeah he's yeah. not being mean to her he's not being misogynistic or something that we might think of in modern terms he's simply chasing up faith so that he can then turn to his disciples and say yeah she has more faith than everybody in israel
1: <laughs> which is incredible
0: right so it does it drive and the the proof is in the pudding there Does it drive her away from him? No, it actually causes her to come after him with even more zeal and fervor.
1: It is incredible to see it at work that way. Right.
0: So therefore, uh, Philip continues, nowhere did the apostle Paul treat of the power and nature of the law so fully as in the passage we have cited. Again, Romans 7, technically 7 through 9. Mm -hmm. I see nothing left out in it. There is no obscurity, nothing entangled. And all things are plain and open. As to his meaning, there can be no doubt. Which is interesting because as you and I both know, and many listeners probably know, many like to translate Romans 7 as if it's in the past tense. Right. And Romans 8 as if it's in the present tense. And Philip kind of lays out here, or at least alludes to it or implies, well, the reason that you would perform those exegetical gymnastics with the verbs is because you want it to be obscure
1: yeah and you want <laughs> and to you deny what he says yes. of himself i am carnal unbelieving without yes. knowledge of god senseless loving myself etc right exactly i mean, I mean uh, Phil, philip here attaches that to
0: himself yes yeah as paul sin, would have him do as paul would have him do to jump down a little bit first corinthians 15 verse 56 says the sting of death is sin the power of sin is the law for sin would not confound and terrify us unless it were shown to you, us by the law. Moreover, sin would not be powerful were it not revealed and stirred up through the law. So neither would death be powerful unless the law terrified us with the work and power of sin. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5 and following distinguishes the law from the Spirit in this way. Quote, our sufficiency is from God, who has qualified us to be ministers of a New Testament, not in a written code, but in the spirit. For the written code kills, but the spirit gives life.
1: Is the spirit at work in the law? Or would we, I think I think what we would do is we would. Uh, yeah, call well, the spirit the spirit of death in that way, though. Or at least according to what Philip's writing here. Mm-hmm. Right, and we confess it in, say, the Nicene Creed, Lord and giver of life, right, is attached right. to the Spirit. And I think maybe the distinction is, uh, which again I think comes up later, the alien work and the proper work. Right. Of the Spirit, or of God in general, or um, in three persons mm-hmm. here, but specifically the Spirit. The proper work of the Spirit is to give life. He doesn't come to right. kill and to damn right. eternally. That's
0: it's not his chief work. Right. But that is essential work. Mm-hmm. Well, and that, that, to your point too, that goes to Luther in the small catechism that he talks in the third article, he enlightens us through the gospel. Mm. He calls us through the gospel, enlightens us with, us with his gifts. Luther is not denying that the law is also God's word, that the spirit is not active through the law, mm-hmm. but to your point, he's emphasizing he calls us by the gospel. Yeah. That's, that's actually how he is the Lord and giver of life. Right. In fact, I would argue, I believe I cannot believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord, or come to him is the law. Hmm. That's the law saying you don't believe this whole thing. You can't come to him. Seems yeah. kind
1: of crazy.
0: Right. Right. So then the next two verses Philip writes, teach more clearly what is meant by spirit and written code. Oh, I mean, we're supposed to keep reading more context. <laughs> hey, context. I like it. Yeah. Quote. Now, if the dispensation of death carved in letters on stone, came with such splendor that the Israelites could not look at Moses' face because of its brightness, fading as this was, why should not the dispensation of the Spirit be attended with greater splendor? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. The law is the dispensation of death. After it has revealed and shown sin, it confounds, terrifies, and slays the conscience. The gospel is the dispensation of the Spirit, as we shall show later, it consoles, encourages, animates, and makes alive minds that before were quaking. And both are properly speaking
1: God's God's work, right? But um, the law is not the
0: hmm, what do you want to say the end all? I guess is yes. a good way to put right. that. There is death, and yeah. then there is life, and they are not to be confused. They are not to be mixed together to make a stew of law and gospel, mm-hmm. which will come up later in the antinomian disputations between Melanchthon and Agricola. Yeah. That and Agricola I, wants to muddy these waters. And I think the, 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 uh, the thing that needs to be
1: emphasized here is that the, the law must reveal our carnal nature. Correct. Our, our, spirit, you know, our spiritual animosity to God, mm-hmm. because apart from that, what's the point of the gospel? Right.
0: Right, exactly. If the law is not preached in its lawfulness, then how can the gospel be preached evangelically? Mm. What sins do I need to forgive? If really, if the law is just a vitamin pill that helps you live a better life, it's a supplement, mm. then how how can the gospel not become therapeutic? I've wondered a little bit more about, um, you know, here, especially
1: from St. Saint- saint paul and second corinthians um it's also coming up and as we're studying john's gospel in our our adult bible class on sunday morning sure Uh, the exodus event of sinai the giving of the law is in the background Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe not as as obviously as we talked about like with the transfiguration which isn't in john uh, but it's there um and I, i just wonder did do the rabbis i haven't done the work do the rabbis do others did they receive sinai as as kind of a wonderful moment in their history, or did they receive it rather as, um, as I think, as Paul does, as a, a really terrifying? Like, and I think the narrative itself probably helps, right? Because they come down mm-hmm. from the mountain and Moses says, don't talk, or they'd say to Moses, don't talk to us anymore. <laughs> right? You know, they're not to touch the mountain. I mean, there's some mm-hmm. gospel moments in it where, where the elders are given to, to feast on the mountaintop with Moses. Mm-hmm. Sure. With
0: God? Well, I think if we just stick to the text and not go into Midrash, which in Midrash, they do view that positively as, as the rabbis do. Yeah, They probably have all sorts of ideas, right? But in Acts, we have Stephen mm. and standing before the religious leaders, he cites that in the present tense and says, yeah, you people are stiff necked cattle. And they know exactly what he was referring to because that's an epic like slam. That's an epic burn from (laughs) exodus and that's why they stone him to death Mm -hmm. because they don't want to be reminded of what you just pointed out
1: yeah and and uh, or the way that that god's people were continually rebellious Mm -hmm. even as they were being delivered right from what is called by the prophets i mean they they even call the time in egypt as rebellion they should have gone home Right, which, exactly. Which is incredible. I mean, because they're they're in Egypt for 430 years until they're in bondage. Why did right. Why did they go into bondage in, uh, under Pharaoh? Mm-hmm. Again, it's an increasing of of the trespass. Correct. The trespass is that they went there, they were saved, they were given food right. by Joseph, and rather than go home, they stayed.
0: Right. No, it's the same thing. I just finished up reading uh, through the Cyrus the Great biography a second time, Xenophon's uh, biography, and toward the end, after he conquers Babylon. The people that he actually leans on the most to really work out his, the structure of his governance are the Israelites. And he he praises them for their wisdom hmm. and their generosity of spirit. And then he says to them, D- do you, I'll give you anything you want. What do you want? And they, they say, we want to go home. And then he says, okay, go home. <laughs> And here, here's everything that the last was, guy it, took out of Israel with, you know, with him. Yeah, we talked about that. It's all in storage waiting. Yeah, it's all in storage, just exactly, you know, in crates like the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> but Cyrus has to send them home.
1: Yeah.
0: And this is why they actually revere and praise Cyrus.
1: Isn't that something? Yeah, and that's in the prophets too. I was reading that. I think, oh, is it Ezekiel maybe? Where, um, you know, not only did the northern kingdom mm-hmm. um, actually want to go along with the Assyrians right into exile then the southern kingdom they go along with the babylonian exile yeah right and we read into it like oh it's terrible they came they got conquered they were Mm -hmm. um they were led there and they they hung up their harps and they stopped singing Mm -hmm. and all all that kind of stuff which is true um but they liked it right exactly they liked it that's the problem with sin i mean it worked out pretty well i mean look at them. they're satraps or whatever you know right the three young
0: men and uh, yeah it's just like send it go home why it's nice here. And this brings up a good point, I think, too, to bring this to a conclusion is there is this, in the first character Melanchthon talks about, it lends itself to enthusiasm. Mm. And we, we always talk about enthusiasm in relation to, well, God spoke to my heart in a positivistic way in the sense of gospel, promise, a vision that directs you to something good, some blessing. But really what enthusiasm is, is trying to work out in your own heart the law in a way that you can live a better life and through living a better life, get into Valhalla, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> and this is the problem with the old Adam, with this carnal, this fleshly understanding of the law, which is God gives me the law. Like I said, usually we take it as an idea or a principle or a philosophical framework. And then we, we take it into ourselves, we internalize it, We intellectualize it, we chew on it, we digest it, whatever language you want to use. And then we have to act out on it. We have to act upon it Mm. and say, this is the proper application of the law in my life. And ironically, it's driving you farther and farther away from
1: faith and trust.
0: Right, because it's not God who's at work at you. Because if God were at work in you, as he points out with the second character, you would be terrified and confused because your heart would be revealed to be nothing but sin. I've not done well enough right yeah and and therefore the opposite of enthusiasm in relation to law is you simply fall to your knees and say lord help me so again psalm 51 language the danger is when you see uh, i guess what we would
1: loosely call success mm-hmm. um you know in your various vocational ventures um even you know in your repentance then to turn back on oneself and yes. take some credit or right. to be boastful or proud of that mm-hmm. which then drives you farther away right and back into great shame and vice. which is
0: why god sends us this is why in luther talks about this in small called this is why god sends preachers hmm. this is why you need a gospel or a law and gospel preacher you need someone who has been sent by god with this message this is the law in all of its lawfulness this is the gospel in all of its evangelical sweetness mm-hmm. because if we get a hold of god's word <laughs> and we internalize it, whether law or gospel, we will corrupt and pervert it and turn it into something that allows us, we believe, we imagine, it's something that opens up a door, a passage, a path, so that we don't have to die. We can climb Jacob's ladder right into heaven. Yeah. What's the
1: expression, you know, to uh, comfort the, the uh, terrified? Afflicted and, affl- and Yeah, uh, and comfort afflict- the
0: afflicted and afflict the comforted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which we talked about at the beginning of the episode in relation to these two characters and how we listen to that confession. Yeah. By the way,
1: um, I started to talk about Exodus and Sinai and I'm looking forward and that's what he goes to after another one paragraph on Galatians 3. He's going to talk through Exodus nineteen. All right. Well, there's <laughs> a good 20- cliffhanger then. Yeah. So go pick up the pick up the text, and you can uh, see. I mean, that's where Melithan goes. He says the lightning and flames on the mountain and the splendor in, and in the face of Moses clearly indicate, to speak in Pauline language, the glory of God by which he confounds the human heart. Right. It terrified them, and it was supposed to.
0: No, absolutely. And so I'm glad we actually backtracked and covered the text that we covered in the previous episode because it, I think it helped springboard into this yeah it gets the context right and i think then this will help springboard into the next episode where we dive into galatians and exodus which then brings us out the other side to the power of the gospel good this might be a summer project for us maybe <laughs> i think it's good it's a good exercise i uh, and melanchthon's a good teacher um no 100 percent. as we said in the last episode this is why luther praises this as the best systematic ever essentially yeah, yeah. it'd be just such a great way to learn,
1: this is how we speak, this is how the scriptures yes. speak, I should say, right. thus this is how we speak, Right, and to tease out that language, and then really to kind of instill it, right, so that you can speak clearly. Right. I was going to say,
0: what a, what a fantastic display of Sola Scriptura. Mm, true. Like, if you who are listening want to understand, really, the application of Sola Scriptura, in my opinion, this is as good as it gets you're not going to do better than this you're just not it's not just as lutheran as it gets it's as christian as it gets i mean it's just yeah I guess. this is really as faithful you mm-hmm. know if we can say anything to me again my opinion this is really the gold standard for us as lutherans to say what's as lutheran as it gets this yeah and it it
1: serves as the paradigm then for our approach to the scripture even to the to the haters maybe later like with a new perspective on paul sure
0: they're really responding
1: against this teaching, this I was going to say early because, Reformation teaching.
0: Uh, lengthen is just saying Paul nailed scripture. <laughs> and by scripture, we mean the Old Testament. So when we say Paul, we're really saying the Old Testament scripture. Because there's no greater exegete of scripture than Paul. Other than Jesus, obviously. But point being then, when we follow Philip and Philip follows Paul, we're following him where? To Exodus, the Psalms, the prophets. Yeah, Paul's like the gateway drug to yeah. the proper understanding of the long gospel and scripture
1: so much so and uh like the writer of the hebrews as we call him yes you know historically people understood that as paul because i think um, in, in just how well he exegetes the levitical commands yes and his knowledge of that and of course paul would know those things um having studied under gamaliel you know mm-hmm. acts, acts 20 whatever he says that 23 28 somewhere in there yeah yeah hmm
0: good stuff so this is yeah this was excellent um again we might have been redundant at the front end but that's because we're having a conversation and it was really good stuff and i forgot to bookmark where we stopped last week so so next week (laughs) tune in for galatians 3 that's right that's right tune in for galatians 3 so gillespie and i can go back if we forget and go what was the last thing we said yeah so as (laughs) always we thank you and appreciate you for all your support and we thank you for again constantly encouraging us to improve and do better and have a conversation that benefits not just us, but you as well. And we hope that iron is sharpening iron and that you get a lot out of this. Go buy the Loci Cues of Philip Wayne Yep. And I think you will not be disappointed. And we'll see you next week for a brand new episode. Love you. Peace.